0: Welcome to the Royal Geographical Society with IBG, Ask the Geographer podcast series. I'm Laura and in each episode we'll be meeting a geographer to discuss their research and where geography has taken them. According to Forbes, in the last seven years, Marvel Studios has released six movies that topped $1.1 billion at the box office. These popular films, based on well-loved Marvel Universe comics, have phenomenal influence on popular culture. But how do these worlds and characters shape geographical imaginations of nation, state, geopolitics, and global governance? In this podcast, we're interviewing Professor Jason Dittmer from University of College London. Comics embody power and tell stories about gender, race, identity, place, and territory. We discuss how geographers are engaging with geopolitics and how iconic superheroes contribute to our understandings of national identity. So I'm wondering if you could tell me how you became interested in geopolitics, popular culture and more specifically comic books. I got
1: into geopolitics right from the start of my PhD because my original career aim was to Uh, hopefully one day be an ambassador or something like that. And so I was always coming at geography from a sort of international relations and global governance perspective. But my PhD was on news media, uh, which seems kind of obvious nowadays. Um, We're so obsessed with how different outlets cover the news in different ways. But um, at the time, I was interested in how American newspapers were covering uh, NATO and European Union expansion into Eastern Europe. And so I did that project, and I was thinking about media and geopolitics and kind of putting those things together. And when I started my very first job, I was trying to figure out a way to teach that material in a way that wasn't so boring, because you'll be surprised to know that 18-year-olds don't really <laughs> want to know about you know, how many times the phrase Central Europe was used in a newspaper from 1992 until 2003. And so I happened upon uh, the idea of Dracula. And so I showed in my classes uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is the one with Keanu Reeves in a star turn, mm-hmm. and Gary Oldman as the villain, <laughs> um, or hero, I guess, depending on your perspective. And so that way I was able to talk about the kind of social construction of regions, right? How we come to imagine places in particular Mm -hmm. ways that have political effects. So that kind of got me thinking then about this whole field of pop culture that was largely being ignored uh, with a few exceptions. You know, um, Klaus Dodds had done some papers on James Bond and political cartoons at that point. Um, Joe Sharp had done Reader's Digest, which is kind of pop culture, but also kind of aspires to be something more than that and so I kind of thought wow there's this whole kind of open goal you know waiting to be filled and so one day I was on a road trip thinking about uh, things and I came upon uh, a memory of Captain America comics which I read when I was sort of 13, 14 years old and I could remember some of the storylines I could remember how they made me feel I remember identifying with the hero in all kinds of ways And I thought, oh, there's a project here. (laughs) I thought it would be a year or two, and it turns out it was about 10.
0: So what does it mean to study geopolitics at university then? So as a lecturer of geopolitics, um, please could you tell me what that entails?
1: Geopolitics is, A, the best thing to study Mm -hmm. at university, and everyone ought to do it. But B, it's a very complex thing, because there are a lot of competing definitions, Uh, And even I get tangled up sometimes in which one I want to use. If I had to come up with a single definition, I would say that geopolitics is about the interrelation of geography and world politics. That can be everything from the relationship between climate change Mm -hmm. and conflict down to the personal consumption of popular culture and feminist geopolitics. So thinking about the relationship between the home and the nation and all these kinds of things that are Not necessarily what we would think of when we say world politics or global politics, but which nevertheless help to compose global politics.
0: This popular culture and popular media and specifically comic books, what is it that you're looking at or analysing when you're reading them? Is it that the writers kind of ascribing political narratives, or is it kind of down to your interpretation of them?
1: A bit of both, I think, inevitably. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the writers and artists have explicitly political motives. You know, the creators of Captain America, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, were um, pretty overt in their explanation that they wanted to, to drum up support in America for a war with Hitler. And that probably has to do with the fact that they were both Jewish, they were in New York, and so they were plugged into kind of transnational uh, news flows about you know within the Jewish community about what was going on in Germany, um, and so they you know clearly portray uh, Germany as a villain long before it was at least widely accepted as such in American society. Other times, I think the writers are just trying to tell a story that will sell copies. I think that, well, that's always what they're trying to do. (laughs) You can't tell a political story very long if nobody's buying it. Um, But so they're always trying to tell a story, though, that resonates with an idea of what America is. Uh, And, you know, when you're telling a story about Captain America, it's never just like any other superhero, right? It's a superhero who's wearing the American flag, explicitly espouses to be a kind of voice and embodiment of the nation. And so... You, you tell a story that you hope will resonate with people's ideas about what America is so that you can sell copies.
0: So what does um, the portrayal of superheroes in comic books, and you mentioned something earlier, and um, kind of imagined places, imagined worlds, what does that tell us about real-life geopolitical situations, how they're framed, particularly in terms of villains, heroes, super villains, superpowers?
1: My kind of Larger framework is one in which I look explicitly at superheroes that are identified with the nation, uh, like Captain America, Captain Britain, Union Jack. There's a whole slew of them. So what's interesting to me about that is the way in which the hero kind of naturalizes this idea of the nation, right? That that there is a hero uh, for every country, <laughs> often just literally the word captain with the name of the country at the end. Um, there's as I mentioned, Captain Britain. There's Hauptmann Deutschland. Um, there's a Captain Liechtenstein that's in a cartoon. I mean, you know, so there's this idea that every country should have its own national superhero. That, I think, speaks to the, the way in which we think of the political world as being kind of naturally divided up between states, that that is a kind of universal way of organizing space, which, of course, it hasn't always been. You go back even a few hundred years to period of multinational empires and you know in which most of the world was colonized and you realize you know that there's vastly different ways of thinking about this i think it speaks to this kind of underlying geography a political geography of of the world and then once you kind of move past that you get to the point where you start thinking about the relationship of these heroes with violence right these are not uh superheroes who sit down and negotiate all the time right they're always solving the problems with their fists um, they are violent figures, but ones that are righteously violent, right? You you understand them to be doing violence for good. I think that starts to help us to understand the way in which conflict and violence gets narrated in the wider world.
0: We've mentioned here, we've talked about superheroes quite a bit and the term hero. Is it that, that this kind of nation shaping is often... Bound up in concepts of masculinity and performance of masculinity, and what does this tell us about gender and more broadly its relation to international relations and law and order?
1: I mean, I mentioned that these heroes embody the nation, and it's probably mm. worth noting that they're almost entirely white men, mm. um, despite coming from a range of, you know, shall we say, more pluralistic, diverse countries. And certainly, in a lot of kind of traditional liberal political theory and so on. The state is understood as a masculine kind of figure, right? The, the, um, you think about the movie 300 and those kind of mm-hmm. you know hard bodied spartans you know who uh, are meant to go out and protect right and they're trained from birth to protect and you can easily draw a line between that and a lot of popular representations of the military today right even though the military is men women trans everything mm-hmm. you know it's still understood as a kind of masculine uh, task right and the state is always understood as a kind of protective shield Whereas the nation, if we start talking about the nation, which is to say the people, right, that often gets kind of anthropomorphized in more female ways, like Mother Russia or Lady Liberty or Britannia, right, these kinds of maternal figures. You know, we shouldn't be surprised, perhaps, although we should object to the fact that most nationalist superheroes are male. There are a couple of examples of female nationalist superheroes, if you consider Wonder Woman a nationalist superhero, which I think you certainly could, right? She's a, an interesting case. Um, there are a few other ones. Um, they tend to either be almost like masculine, even in their femininity, right? So I talk about in my book, a character named uh, Sabra, who is an Israeli superhero. And she's a woman who lost her entire family to or her children to a Palestinian uh, attacker. And so she is this kind of hard-edged, emotionless, angry, well, it can't be emotionless and angry, mm-hmm. but you know what I mean? She's, yeah. she's stone-faced, you know, relentless in a very mm-hmm. masculine fashion. Um, and then the other example I give is of a character from World War II called Miss America, who uh, was the only woman in a superhero group called the All Winners Squad. And she was actually just as powerful or more powerful than all the men, but she took the minutes at their meetings, which I I (laughs) thought was telling. There are a few examples, they are few and far between, uh, of women and nationalist superheroes.
0: You've also mentioned previously in some of your work this idea of um, American exceptionalism, and we've kind of picked up on that in Captain America, etc., and there's particularly American superheroes. Can you tell me what this means and how it's depicted through some of the books? and superior narratives that you've worked with. So
1: American exceptionalism is the idea uh, that America, that the United States is either historically, politically, morally, any one of those or all of them, distinct and different from all the other countries in the world. Um, And this is a concept which um, really has long origins, right? It goes all the way back to the foundation of kind of english colonies in the area um john winthrop who was on the mayflower described the desire to create a shining city on a hill which would be a beacon for the rest of the world to look to you know and so that this was a rejection of the old european order as corrupt and feminized and all of these things um remember they were puritans so they (laughs) they were they were leaving or they'd been thrown out depending on who you ask um and looking to create a place that would be more godly. So there's this, from the beginning, there's this idea of it's a moral, fresh start, right, a do-over. And it's said that, you know, this is a fairly common belief in the United States among uh, citizens. You know, there was a whole set of debates while President Obama was president, about whether or not he believed America was, and the the kind of undertone was that if he didn't believe in American exceptionalism, then he wasn't, you know, good enough to be American. What's useful about it, I think, in terms of international relations and global governance, is thinking about um, the kind of world order that first Britain and then the United States helped to create, in which, um, in a lot of ways, domestic law uh, got kind of projected outwards into the international realm. So if traditionally inside the state territory you have domestic institutions, courts, police, government to run things, then outside of that there was no such set of institutions. You couldn't, if someone broke a treaty, you couldn't take them to court, that kind of thing. And since World War II, Britain and America have worked quite hard to create these kinds of international institutions, and they They don't have the same kind of purchase as domestic institutions do, but they nevertheless exist and do have some significance. Of course, you can always point to countries that ignore them, but more or less, they work. And likewise with trade, you know, that the U.S. and Britain have worked hard to create a world in which goods flow back and forth, you know, as if you are trading within the nation state. American exceptionalism is such that... You know, America created these institutions but has largely argued that it should not be bound by it itself, right? So um, we have the creation of the U.N. Security Council, uh, and the U.S. has a veto, as do several other countries. The U.S. argues against the proliferation of nuclear weapons, but, of course, keeps its own. The U.S., uh, when, for instance... wanted to invade and britain when the two of them wanted to invade iraq and the security council would not endorse it they did it anyway right Mm -hmm. so there is this kind of general expectation in the united states that it should not be bound by this kind of liberal international order that it's created and that is parallel you may be wondering where the superheroes are in this Mm -hmm. that is parallel to the kind of way in which superheroes are narrated right so they are um, generally understood as forces for good, forces for the status quo. They want to protect law and order, um, but they do that generally by being a vigilante, right? They, they may occasionally cooperate with the police, but they are not the police. They have exactly as much right to go around punching people as I have the right to go down to the pub and punch someone. And the point is to say um, that these kinds of narrations of violence, I think, parallel each other. And so you can see... American exceptionalism inside these superheroes. They were invented at a time in the late 1930s when fascism was on the rise in the world in which it was not known in the way that we now think of it as being an obviously terrible idea, right? There were a lot of people arguing for it. Mm -hmm. And um, even in the United States and in the UK. And then certainly after uh, World War II in the 1960s when superheroes kind of do a big comeback right? By then, the United States was a superpower, one of two in the whole world, right? And so it was able to kind of act with relative impunity in this world order that it was creating, right? And it's not unlike thinking about Superman or some other Spider-Man or any of these characters.
0: So I guess comic books in part depend on the role of humor and satire. Can you tell me a bit more about the role of... Um, laughter or even non-laughter in understanding geopolitics so dealing with kind of funny comical media, understanding rather complex global processes
1: I mean it's such a timely question I think because if you look at the um, the recent indictment by Robert Mueller of the kind of Russian organisation that was intervening in both social media networks but also in, as we now find out in real life, I think we get some interesting insight into the way in which humor works within geopolitics. On the one hand, you have kind of groups within a society that are um, working towards various political ends, right? So you have various political parties and various kind of factions who maybe line up with those political parties at various times, Um Certainly we see within, for instance, the alt-right, which you may have heard of as the kind of racist, conservative group, or at least the most overtly um, racist group in American politics. And they're, they explicitly talk about how humor is part of their way of trying to get their ideas out and make them acceptable. And so the, the way in which they deploy memes, starting in kind of niche social media areas like 4chan and reddit and then kind of some of those bubble up to the surface and apparently they make their way into um, facebook feeds and twitter feeds what we might think of as slightly more mainstream social media practices and so these memes are usually you know a picture juxtaposed with a caption it might be a a video clip with a caption or something like that Mm -hmm. which is meant to inspire humor, derision, satire, something along those lines. When that happens, we can think of it as doing two things simultaneously, right? On the one hand, it's pulling people in. People who may not even agree with the politics, but can appreciate a good joke, right? (laughs) Or maybe they're just a little bit racist, Mm -hmm. and it's edgy enough to make them laugh, but they wouldn't tell the joke at work, right? Mm -hmm. And so you start to kind of pull people into a web of media that will over time start to reshape their subjectivity and they'll start to identify themselves personally as someone who likes these kind of things and then they'll go to seek them out because laughing feels good Mm -hmm. and laughing at people you disagree with you know feels good too which leads to the second point right so you're on the one hand you're pulling things in on the other hand you're creating divisions and you are creating the group that is being laughed at and they will have a very different feel about that joke than you will. And so it, it starts to pull people apart, which is why we can think about why the Russians were doing this, right? And apparently can still continue to in one way or another, that they see it as a way of pulling apart either the American public or the wider Western bloc. Um, by exacerbating these divisions within it.
0: What would you recommend for geographers beginning to pick these in situations or kind of noticing the importance of humour in everyday life and how it links to kind of understanding geopolitics? I think the
1: best thing you could do would be to step outside of your own life right? It's easier to pick apart humor in someone else's life. And that might mean creepily eavesdropping on another conversation. But I think it's interesting to stop and listen to when humor or when laughter, I should say, because laughter is different than humor. When does laughter emerge? And why does it seem to emerge in those moments? Sometimes it's about social discomfort. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's about being welcoming and including people. You know, some, we all kind of laugh at someone else's joke, maybe a little too hard, because you want them to feel included and you want them to know mm-hmm. um, that they're part of the group. And then other times you're laughing at someone, and as I said, that's, you know, doing a different kind of social work. And I think once you've started to play with that by listening either to your friends when they're having a conversation or, um, you know, people at another table next door or something like that, then. You can start to think about your own life and where humor is in there, and you can start to think critically about how you want to laugh and when you want to laugh. You know, laughing at, uh, for instance, a racist joke to kind of make things less awkward. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. I think it depends on the situation, but should probably think about it before you do it. <laughs> yeah, you know? Putting that kind of self critical analysis mm-hmm. in places where you can you can start there thinking critically about things and you can build out.
0: Which films or comic books would you recommend to geographers beginning to unpick these situations themselves and analyse these complex questions about how nations are shaped, for example.
1: Well, it's literally an endless task. So I guess the first thing I would say would be to start with whatever you find interesting or compelling. First, watch it to enjoy it, because by all means, you should still enjoy these things. And then watch it again to think critically about it. Or or read it again to think critically about it. And... More specifically than that, I mean, the action genre remains a classic area to investigate. You know, that has partly been subsumed into the superhero genre, but with the revival of Star Wars, with the seemingly endless uh, Transformers films, anything by Jerry Bruckheimer is great for a critical (laughs) analysis. In terms of comic books, I mean... There's been fascinating stories uh, over the last couple of decades to look at. Um, You might start with the Civil War storyline from the mid-2000s, which was a pretty explicitly geopolitical take on the war on terror. If you want to go in the Wayback Machine, one of my favorites was a a comic book in the 1980s called Captain Confederacy, Mm -hmm. which took... The idea of the nationalist superhero and put it in a counterfactual timeline in which the Confederacy won the U.S. Civil War. And it very self-consciously plays with the idea of this this kind of superhero as a propaganda device. And so it was a, a quite thoughtful thing. And the best part is it ends up that Captain Confederacy ends up becoming a pregnant black woman. Uh, so it's there's a kind of fascinating take there on the on the issues we've talked about: gender, race, national identity, uh, and a real contestation of those ideas.
0: So, where might students and teachers find out more about your work and current research?
1: Well, I am a professor of political geography in the Department of Geography at University College London uh and so one students could come and study under me i would love that uh secondly you can find my publications on amazon uh including one on captain america the national superhero and i'm found on twitter at real j Dittmer. if you don't mind endless political humor um <laughs> you, you might enjoy it
0: thanks for listening If you are interested in geopolitics and global governance, make sure you check the Schools Resources section at rgs.org forward slash schools for articles, overview papers and more.